0: If you would, please remain standing and open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 12. That's Romans chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Please be seated. Last week, Casey got us started in chapter 12 of Romans. What we saw in those first two verses of chapter 12 is Paul making a significant shift in his subject matter. We've spent months and months going through the first 11 chapters of Romans, and Paul has been giving his readers one of the best, if not the best, lessons in theology and doctrine in all of Scripture. Through theology, we gain the knowledge of who God is. We've seen the wrath of God, the grace of God, the faithfulness of God, and we've seen the righteousness of God on display in the first 11 chapters. When it comes to doctrine... I'm sure I'll leave some out. But we see the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin. We see our need for a savior. We see the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We see the freedom found in that salvation. Freedom from God's wrath, freedom from sin, freedom from the law, freedom from death. And we've seen the scope of salvation, that it was always meant for both the Jew and the Gentile. So we've spent 11 chapters, 11 chapters that have provided us with knowledge of who God is and how he acts. We've seen the knowledge of redemptive history and the fullness of God's redemptive plan for his people. So after months of going through these chapters verse by verse, I hope and pray that we've walked away with a few key lessons. First, All of mankind is guilty of sin. As Paul quotes from the Old Testament, none are righteous, no, not one. Our sin has earned us a well-deserved punishment of death. Salvation is only found in the completed work of Christ. There's no work of man, no work of the law. Only through Christ do we have justification. Salvation is the work of a sovereign God. Only God, working in the hearts of those he has freely chosen before the foundation of the world, can be justified as sinners. And God is a promise keeper. All of his promises are yes and amen. So we hit chapter 12 when Paul shifts, as he often does, from knowledge, talking about theology and doctrine, to our duty as believers from belief to behavior, from exposition to exhortation. He shifts from the gospel to the idea of Christian living. So for the next three chapters, chapters 12 through 15, that's actually four chapters, sorry, uh, 12 through 15, Paul provides what Steve Lawson would call the so what of the book of Romans in light of the rich theology and doctrine that we've seen in chapters 1 through 11, what should our response as believers be? How should believers live in light of the limitless grace and mercy found in salvation? Many will call chapters 12 through 15 Paul's practical application, and you hear that all the time as we look at Scripture. What is the practical application? I've used that term myself probably way too much, but now I tend to agree with James Montgomery Boyce in his distaste for that word, for that term, practical application. As he wrote in his commentary on Romans, to call these chapters practical runs the risk of implying that the doctrine taught through the first 11 chapters is not practical. Boyce says that doctrine is Practical. Doctrine is practical, and the practical material found in 11 through 12 must be doctrinal, if it's to be any help to us at all. James Montgomery Boyce preferred the term consequences. What are the consequences of chapters 1 through 11? He says, we have have had lots of ideas in the first great section of Romans, truthful ideas, stirring ideas, ideas that have come to us by means of an inerrant and authoritative revelation. Now we are to explore their many important consequences. So what are the consequences of the theology and the doctrine taught in the first 11 chapters? In chapters 12 through 15, we'll see what those consequences are. And they are that of a transformed life. Over the next four chapters, we'll see this transformation. We'll see it as it relates to believers' overall conduct. We'll see it as it it relates to believers' interaction with the civil authorities. We'll see it as it relates to this interaction with fellow man. And today, we'll look at what this transformation means as it relates to believers' interaction with fellow believers. So last week, Casey covered the first two verses in this chapter, and it's kind of a heavy two verses when we think about it. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And secondly, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in light of what Paul taught for 11 chapters, our lives are to be completely different. Now, think about that. In light of our sin, our lives are to be different. In light of God's righteousness, in light of Christ's completed work, in light of justification by faith alone, in light of God choosing those who He would save, in light of all of God's grace and mercy, a believer's life should be transformed. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. As Casey said last week, that is not a suggestion. It is an imperative, a command found in Scripture. To present our bodies as living sacrifices, that is our spiritual worship. Paul also calls us to conform, to, to not conform to the world, rather to be transformed. By what? By the renewal of our minds. And for what purpose? So that we may discern what is the will of God. To be able to tell what is the difference between good and evil. To know what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is no small matter for believers. God didn't call men to salvation so they could continue in their sinful lifestyles, He calls men to salvation for the purposes of His glory to show his grace and his mercy. In those two verses where we start, Paul puts a lifetime of spiritual growth and maturity. But now we need to explore how do we do that? How do we present our bodies as a living sacrifice? How do we keep from conforming to the things of this world? That's what chapters 12 through 15 are about. And our text today begins simply enough. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So Paul moves on from those first two verses, the consequences of, Of the doctrine and theology that we've learned a christian's right relationship with other people in particular our relationship as it relates to each other in the church and where does he begin with this he begins with a self-evaluation he urges believers not to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, to evaluate themselves rightly with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has given them. We're talking about pride here. Why start with pride? I believe because it's one of the easiest sins for each and every one of us to fall into. All of us at times think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Each of us, at times, concern ourselves with the opinions of others. We desire to have others have an overly high opinion of us. When it comes to how we think about ourselves, we often lean on things like our family names, our jobs, our money, the things that we own, what clothes we wear, the meals that we eat, the cars that we have, the homes that we live in, the travel that we take. For some people, it's a type of spiritual pride. Find pride in the knowledge that they have and their understanding of theology In the authors that they read and the pastors that they follow. For some people, it's more about a pride of having power over someone else. Someone that finds their pride in the fact that they're the boss of someone else. Too often we can see this in pastors, of having an overinflated opinion of self. We can see it in deacons. We can see it in worship leaders. We can see it in teachers. For some people, their pride comes from their education from their perceived IQ or the amount of knowledge that they've gathered. For some, pride takes place with the idea of some type of false humility. The humble brag. Falsely portraying helplessness. Using self-deprecating humor. But false humility is just another way of expressing pride. So, in light of everything that God has done, in light of everything that Christ has accomplished, in light of the total depravity of man, what exactly do we have to take pride in? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 saying, For, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. That's got to be a great start to a letter. Not many of you guys were very wise. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul calls us to rightly examine ourselves in light of what Christ has done. Now, to rightly examine ourselves, there's a a flip side to this coin. While some people may have pride in themselves, the opposite can be true. Believers can think too lowly of themselves at times, too lacking any self-esteem and this is just as dangerous because people will naturally attempt to prop themselves up in other areas and most of the time it'll be those areas that lead us to pride in ourselves. believers that think too lowly of themselves will often end up denying their worth as image bearers of a holy god Believers that think too lowly of themselves end up belittling what Christ has done. When in reality, we need to remind ourselves that we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul calls believers to think with sober judgment. How do we evaluate ourselves? Do we take the shadows that are in this world and evaluate ourselves against that standard Or do we evaluate ourselves in light of scripture? We need to stop comparing ourselves to others. We need to stop comparing ourselves to the standards of the world. We need to stop finding our value in things like riches and our education and just stuff. We need to stop finding our value in other people's opinions of us. Because none of these things dictate who we are. we need to evaluate ourselves as God's creatures. As sons and daughters of the Most High. As individuals who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. As individuals who are chosen before the foundation of the world. As individuals that were knitted together in your mother's womb by the creator of the universe. Then and only then can we rightly examine ourselves and find where our worth lies. Along with thinking with sober judgment, we are to do this in accordance to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You'll notice that Paul doesn't say according to the faith that you have gained for yourself, according to the measure of faith that you have worked for, but rather he's talking about the measure of faith that God has has assigned to you. So what does Paul mean by this measure of faith? James Montgomery Boyce lays out three options for how to interpret this. First is our measure of faith is our own confidence in God. It's our own trust in God. So you take a very literal reading here that in accordance with the measure of our own faith... Number two, our measure of faith is our knowledge of God or the faith that God has revealed to us. That would read something like according to the degree of knowledge about yourself and all people that you have attained. His third option is our measure of faith relates to the specific gifts or talents that God has given you. And given where this chapter is going, I think that is the correct interpretation that we need to take here. Think soberly according to the gifts and talents that God has given you. The theologian John Murray said this of this text, it is called the measure of faith in the restricted sense of the faith that is suited to the exercise of this gift. And this nomenclature is used to emphasize the cardinal place which faith occupies, not only in our becoming members of this community, but also in the specific functions Performed as its members. So genuine humility is the result of this sober thinking. Understanding the gifts that God has bestowed upon his people is what leads to genuine humility. Pride cannot be the outcome of, think- of this type of thinking. A lack of self-esteem in who we are cannot be the outcome of this type of thinking. Examining yourself against the gifts that God has provided can never lead a believer to say, I have nothing to offer anyone or God can't use me. As we continue in verse 4 of our text, Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We move from the right examination of ourselves that includes sober contemplation, an assessment of the specific gifts and talents that the Lord has given us, And Paul moves on to the corporate body. We as believers are members in Christ's body. And each individual believer has their own function within that body. And Paul uses one of his favorite metaphors here when he talks about the church, that of the body. In Ephesians chapter 4, he writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. That belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he expands on this metaphor. Where he writes, for just as the body is one and has many members and all of the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If a foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. This is an idea that is lost on a lot of churches today. Many believers have traded away the idea of a church being a community of like-minded believers. Concepts like living life with one another, encouraging one another, holding each other accountable, actually knowing the people that are in the church have been replaced with individualism and consumerism. We talk to a lot of people that are looking for local churches around here. And often these people have a list of needs that must be met in order for them to be a part of a local church. The music has to be a certain style and has to be at a certain level of professionalism, or they won't join a church. The sermons have to be entertaining and upbeat. There have to be certain programs in place that I, or my spouse, or my children can utilize. I don't want to be a part of a church that asks too much of its members. One of my favorite ones. The church must agree with me on every single point of theology and doctrine, no matter how small. I just want to be able to slip in and out on Sunday morning. This is not what Paul's t- talking about. He points us back to a community of believers. More than that, through the metaphor of the body, he shows our desperate need of one another as believers. The idea that much like a body, the church does not function correctly unless all of its members are working. The biblical church is such a beautiful image. Believers worshiping together, united under a common cause and banner, <coughs> working together to meet The needs of one another, celebrating with one another in our times of joy, suffering beside us in our times of pain, encouraging one another, holding each other accountable, buffeting each other from the winds and storms of this world. You'll find these ideas in scriptures, they are imperatives, they are commands for believers, but there's so much more than that. The church is a grace and a mercy given to us from God. He equips each and every believer to serve the body of the church. And he equips believers not just in one way, but in a multitude of ways. Each one meant to serve the church. not only to serve individuals, but also for individuals to serve one another. (coughs) If we keep reading in our text, in verse 6, Paul writes, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching... The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does not, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. God grants each and every believer with spiritual gifts. The word that Paul uses here for gifts is his charisma or charismata. It's based on the word grace. So these gifts are given by God's grace. It's given by God's unmerited favor. It's given according to God's pleasure. And these gifts differ from per- person to person. So what does Paul urge his, leader, urge his readers to do? Very simple. God gives you gifts use them let us use the gifts that god gives us it's very simple god in his own pleasure according to the grace that he freely gives gives us these spiritual gifts if god gives us these gifts it is for a purpose they're to be used for the purposes of his glory they're to be used for the purposes of encouraging his local church In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about spiritual gifts, saying, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for a common good. What's the purpose? For the common good. For the good of his people, these gifts are meant to be used. Paul gives us seven examples here. And it's not that there's only seven spiritual gifts. It's not exactly about the gifts that he is listing. If you look at every one of these examples, (coughs) it basically says, if you are gifted in this way, use that gift. So he starts with prophecy. And this is probably the the, the hardest one out of the bunch to talk about, because I'm sure that every one of us have in our head a picture of prophecy and what that means. Most likely, it's the idea in the Old Testament that the prophet was the one who spoke for God, that he spoke the very words of God and received special revelation that we now have in Scripture today. In this sense, that gift is no longer active. If someone comes to you and say, I have new revelation of God run far and quickly. But I don't think this is what Paul was talking about here. I believe that Paul's talking about a lesser gift of prophecy where we're talking about preaching or teaching someone that is speaking the words of God that we have here, not a new revelation And you'll notice this is the only one out of the list that has a limitation on it. If prophecy, then in proportion to your faith, to our faith. Now notice, I got ahead of myself there. It doesn't say in proportion to your faith, in proportion to his faith. It says in proportion to our faith or the faith, meaning that the preaching and teaching should be limited by scripture. In Galatians chapter 1, it says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the, the gospel of Christ. But even if we, the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed Let him be accursed. Moves on to serving. If your gift is serving, then serve. The word used here roughly translates to ministry. It's where we get our word for ministry. And while we think of the ministries of teaching or we think of the ministry of the deacons, these things certainly come to mind, but we're not limited to just those areas of ministry. All different types of ministry are meant here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that the church is herself only when she exists for humanity. She must take her part in the social life of the world, not lording it over men, but helping and serving them. She must tell men, whatever they're calling, what it means to live in Christ, to love for others. In his book, Life Together, a study of the meaning of the church, of, of Christian fellowship, he lists some lesser known but widely needed ministries in the church, such as a ministry of holding one's tongue, a ministry of meeking, me, uh, meekness, a ministry of listening, a ministry of helping, a ministry of bearing burdens, a ministry, ministry of speaking truth. Whatever the ministry is, if God has gifted you in serving, then use it by serving. If your gift is teaching, then teach. Plain and simple. If your gift is teaching, then you need to be teaching. Now, does that mean preaching from a pulpit? Maybe, maybe not. Does it mean teaching on Wednesday night or Sunday morning? Does it mean teaching children? I don't know the context of that, but if God has gifted you in teaching, you are to be teaching. This applies to teaching in the home. This applies to ideas like one-on-one discipleship. This applies to ideas like one-on-one counseling. If your gift is teaching, then teach. If your gift is exhortation, then exhort one another. If your gift is giving then do it with generosity if your gift is leadership then do it with zeal if your gift is serving with acts of mercy then do it with cheerfulness now I want to be clear here Paul is talking about specific gifts I know at least someone here is probably sitting there thinking, well, you know what, I'm not gifted in these areas, so I don't need to do those things. I'm not gifted in cheerfully giving, so I don't need to give. I'm not a gifted teacher, so I don't need to teach. I'm not gifted in exhortation, so I don't need to exhort. That is not what Paul is saying here. What he is saying here is if God has granted you to be especially gifted in these areas, then you better make sure you're doing it. If you're not gifted in these areas, that's not a free pass not to do these things. So these are just examples of the many spiritual gifts that God bestows on his people. We see some of this expanded on slightly in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Peter wrote, as each has received his gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. No one gets a free pass on this. If you are a believer here today, God has given you one or more spiritual gifts. And you are to use them to serve the body of Christ. Now it can be difficult as we get into these chapters because we're going to see imperative or command after command after command, and it can be overwhelming at times. It can be overwhelming, especially when we examine our own lives and see how far we fall short, how far we fall short. But we can't miss out on the richest the richness of God's blessings, even in His commands to believers. Remember the two commands that Paul started with. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That sounds like a tall order, and it is a tall order. But the beauty of it is we're not alone in this. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. Paul in Galatians said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In Second Corinthians, he wrote, Therefore, as if, any, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Yes, we have these commands that seem impossible to follow. And prior to salvation, those commands were impossible to follow. Not only were they impossible to follow, we had no desire to follow those commands. But if you were a believer, having been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then you are a new creation. Prior to salvation, we could never present ourselves as living sacrifices. We could never do anything but be conformed by the world. But it's found in the completed work of Christ that we now have the ability to do these things. So, if we spend the coming weeks looking at chapters 12 through 15, if all you see when you read this is a list of rules or commands that believers must follow, then you have completely missed the point of the first 11 chapters. We were wretched sinners, we were enemies of God, traitor of the purposes of God haters of everything that was good and holy we rightly deserve death for that but god sent his only son to put on flesh to experience the hardships of this life to experience the temptation to experience the coldness the hunger the pain the loss and to do all these things yet with no sin Jesus, being fully God and fully man, died a sinner's death, and on the third day he rose from the dead. Christ took our well deserved punishment on himself, fully drinking the cup of God's wrath that we have earned for ourselves. And he did so for those that the Lord chose before the foundation of the world to save, those who would repent. And believe. He made it possible for sinners such as ourselves to be justified before a holy God. He took our hearts of stone and He made them hearts of flesh. He brought us from death to life. Chapters 12 through 15 of Romans is not some kind of payment for that work. It's not a list of things that we owe to our Savior. It's not a list of duties that we must perform as believers. They are the consequences of our salvation. This is the outflowing of the work of Jesus Christ. We are a new creation, and a new creation acts differently than the old. But again, here's the beauty of it. We're not alone in this. This would be completely overwhelming if we saw this list of imperatives and thought, I have to do this alone. God has blessed believers with his church. Not as some form of entertainment. Not as something for us to come on Sunday and consume. Not as a place to come to have all of our preferences and desires met. No, the church, as John Stott describes it, the church is a people, a community of people, who owe their existence to, their solidarity, and their corporate distinctness from other communities to one and one thing only, to the call of God. The church is not a burden, but it's a blessing meant to equip and encourage believers. It's meant to meet our needs, both spiritually, emotionally, physically. The church is meant to fill those needs. It's meant to equip and encourage us. It's meant to act as a body with each part doing its job. A body of believers whose head is Christ. But that's not all. God blesses us with spiritual gifts. Also, not a burden. And I hear this way too often. I have said it myself many times. Knowing that God has gifted you in a particular way can often push you to say, I don't want to serve in that way. It's not a burden. It is a blessing. Each and every believer here, no one gets out of this. Each and every believer has been blessed with a spiritual gift. And these gifts were meant to be used for the betterment of God's church. We are stewards of these spiritual gifts. Say that again. The spiritual gifts that God gives us, we are stewards of those gifts. What would it say about believers to be given a gift and then not use it? These gifts aren't meant to be hidden. They're not meant to be put aside. They're meant to be used. They're meant to be used in the home. They're meant to be used in the world around you. But most importantly, they're meant to be used within the church. What happens when believers don't use their gifts? It hurts the body. Plain and simple. A believer who does not use their gifts hurts the body. Not using your gifts belittles the one who gave you the gifts. Not using your gifts makes the church less effective. Not using your gifts means that someone else in the church is going without your gift. Not using the gifts that God has blessed us with is basically stealing from God's church. Because those gifts were meant to be used for the common good of his church. If you remember the parable of the talents, the master leaves money in the hands of three servants to manage while he's gone. The first two servants put that money to work and bring back a profit for the master. The third buried his money out of fear. What did the master say when he returned to that third servant? He said, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather what I have not scattered, where I have scattered no seed. And the master casts the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is sinful for us to take the spiritual gifts that God has given us and refuse to use them. So it's my prayer today that each and every believer here would first and foremost be encouraged as we walk through these remaining chapters in Romans. And like I said, it it may get a little difficult because we're going to have command after command after command. And if we examine ourselves, often what we will see is failure after failure after failure to live up to those commands. But we need to be encouraged and not look at these things as a list of duties that we must perform as a list of legalistic ideas on how to live our lives. We need to look at these things and say, these are the consequences of Christ's completed work. We need to be able to look at these things and say, I'm not alone in them. Christ has given me the church. Christ has given me other believers to encourage me, to hold me accountable, to equip me, to be able to do this work. Christ has given us spiritual gifts to make this work possible. So I pray that every one of us would spend time in prayer and meditation seeking to better use our spiritual gifts. If you're sitting there today and you you say, I don't know what my spiritual gift is, that's what you need to spend some prayer and time and i don't remember exactly who it was but one of the one of the theologians i read this week basically went back and said if you don't know if you don't know what your spiritual gift is then the proper response to that is to go and serve anyway and you will find your spiritual gift that with prayer and meditation Is how we find our spiritual gifts. So I'm gonna leave us today with the encouragement that Paul gives to the church of Ephesus. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for giving us a reminder today that we are not alone in this Christian life. So often we may speak of the birth of your son, of his living without sin, of his death and his resurrection, of the Spirit's work and salvation. But we can forget that even now your son is at your right hand, Lord, mediating on behalf of believers. Lord, that you are still actively working in our lives, Lord, that you are fulfilling your promises day by day to us to conform us in the image of your Son. Lord, I pray that you would put it on our hearts to have a desire to serve your church, Lord. Not out of obligation, not out of any type of fear or anything like that, Lord. But you you would give us a desire because your church is your people. Give us a love for one another. It's in your holy and precious name we pray.